even when the hunting in Botswana, photographic and, uh, and, and safari hunting complement each other. The animal rights group don't understand all this. To them, it's hunting and should be stopped. To them, it's like uh, the citizens of Botswana, the government of Botswana, the researchers in Botswana don't understand conservation and the global north, the animal rights group should come and say, this is how we do it. Welcome to the Ecopolitics Podcast. My name is Peter Andre from the Department of Political Science at Carleton University. My co-host for this series is Ryan katz from the University of Ottawa, though Ryan isn't joining me for this particular episode. In this, our second series, we're addressing major themes in global ecopolitics. In today's podcast, the theme is wildlife conservation. In this case, the conservation of African elephants and the tensions that exist between how people in the global north tend to view these issues versus how they are perceived and experienced by the rural people who live alongside wild animals in countries like Botswana in southern Africa. We'll explore this issue by looking at the question of elephant hunting in Botswana. In 2014, then-President Ian Kama issued a decree instituting a ban on the hunting of elephants within Botswana. This was widely lauded by animal welfare, animal rights, and conservation groups in the global north, but had questionable results in Botswana, as we'll discuss. Most controversially, the hunting ban was associated with a shoot-to-kill policy for poachers and arming anti-poaching units with high-powered military-style weapons. In 2019, following an election victory that rested in part on his position on the hunting ban, Kama's successor and current president, Mogwetsi Masisi, tasked a committee of stakeholders with re-evaluating the ban. After public consultations, this committee recommended removing the hunting ban and allowing selective culling of elephants in Botswana, where they pose a growing threat to people in certain circumstances. This was undertaken in 2019, to considerable criticism from these same international groups who believed this is another step in the decline of elephant populations in Africa. Botswana also argued at the meeting of the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species, or CITES, for reinstituting the international trade of ivory for countries such as Botswana. Masisi was not successful with this request, blocked by these same international conservation groups, who were also supported by countries like Kenya, who wish to keep the ivory trade banned. Today we're going to talk about all of this. Why was Botswana's hunting ban put in in the first place? Why was it revoked? What does all of this tell us about conservation efforts in Africa? What does it tell us about the relationship between conservation efforts, local people, and democracy? What does it tell us about North-South relations? What role does racism and what has been termed eco-colonialism play in how this issue has played out internationally? To help us unpack this story, we have two guests with us today who know a great deal about these issues. Dr. Joseph Mbaiwa, is the director of the Okavango Research Institute at the University of Botswana. He is also a professor of tourism studies. He is widely published in areas of tourism development, community-based natural resource management, rural livelihoods, and biodiversity conservation. Second, Dr. Chris Brown is a colleague of mine in political science at Carleton. He teaches comparative politics with a specialization in the politics of Southern Africa. Last year, Chris gave a seminar in the Institute of African Studies at Carleton on the politics of Botswana's hunting ban, which sparked the idea of having him here today alongside Dr. Mbaiwa as guests on Ecopolitics podcasts. 
So I'm very happy they're both able to join us today. Chris, I'd like to start with you to give us a bit of the international background for this story. Can you tell us briefly just a bit more about the state of African elephants and how Botswana fits into this picture? Sure. And uh, thank you for having me on this podcast, Peter. Um, should be clear, of course, I'm a political scientist, not an ecologist. Um, but I have been looking into this issue. And if we look at the status of Africa of elephants around the world, best estimate, there might be half a million uh, elephants in the world today, of which about 90% are in Africa, the rest in Asia. Uh, we have a fairly good count of the elephants in Africa that was conducted in 2014, 2015, a so-called Great Elephant Census, uh, which did, which is the largest wildlife survey that's ever been conducted, and surveyed 18 countries in Africa where there's elephant range. And it's thought that that survey covered about 90% of the total Africa, elephants in Africa. It found that there were about 415,000 elephants uh, in the survey area. Um, and uh, the headline coming out of that was that this represents a serious decline uh, over the last couple of decades. We don't have exact numbers, but it's possible that there were as many as a million elephants uh, 20 years ago at the turn of the millennium. So certainly elephant populations in Africa are under serious threat and are uh, in decline. Something else that came out of the survey, though, was that uh, the tremendous regional variation in Africa in terms both of numbers and the uh, stress upon elephant populations. So of those elephants that exist in Africa, uh, a mere 3%, for instance, are in West Africa, where populations were described as being small, fragmented, uh, and isolated. 70% of African elephants are in Southern Africa, where it was argued uh, in the survey that there remain large, virtually undisturbed tracts of elephant range. So great regional variation. Regional variation too in uh, poaching pressures. Poaching pressures have been in recent decades very high in Eastern Africa and in Central Africa. Tanzania in the 10 years before the survey saw a 60% decline in its populations. Uh, other countries in Central Africa, like Cameroon, Central African Republic, Democratic Republic of Congo, and others have all seen uh, serious declines as a result of poaching pressures as well. Poaching pressures have not historically been as strong in Southern Africa, uh, where the majority of uh, African elephants are. But Swana, in a certain sense, is an elephant superpower, if I could put it that way. Uh, the estimate is that there are currently about 130,000 elephants in Africa, which means that there are more elephants in Botswana than any other country in the world. Um, and unlike many other countries in Africa, the elephant population in Africa has actually been growing, or at least until recently. Estimates, uh, perhaps not quite as firm historically, but best estimates available are that at the time of independence, um, uh, in the 1960s, there were perhaps 10,000 elephants in Botswana. And in the mid-1980s, there were perhaps 50,000 elephants in Botswana. And that by about 2004, 2005, 15 years ago, uh, the population had reached its current number of 130,000. It's been stable uh, ever since. Botswana also has the highest density of elephants of any country in Africa. So in many respects, it's been regarded as a refuge uh, for elephants, um, which is part of the reason why the story about hunting and poaching in Botswana attracted such attention. 
final point I'd make is that um, when I'm speaking about national elephant populations, so many elephants in Botswana, so many elephants in Tanzania, whatever, that actually does not make ecological sense. Um, elephants are very large animals uh, that cover a lot of territory uh, and they don't know and they don't respect national boundaries. So if we look at the elephant population in Botswana, which is concentrated in the northern part of the country, it's actually part of a larger elephant range, uh, which includes parts of Angola, Namibia, Zimbabwe, and Zambia. It's the so-called Kavango Zambezi Transfrontier Conservation Area. And this larger area, it's estimated there are about 225,000 elephants, which are half the elephants in Africa in that one area. And certainly, uh, ecologically, you need to look at that group of elephants as a whole and not just pull out the elephants in Botswana by itself. Thank you, Chris, for kind of giving that bigger picture, which, uh, you know, to sum it up is uh, elephant populations across Africa and, and globally are in a decline, potentially serious decline. And yet uh, Botswana stands out as, as quite different. Uh, Joe, I'd like to turn to you now. Um, if you want to add any nuance to what uh, Chris just uh, elaborated about the elephant populations. And then I wonder if you can turn specifically to Botswana's uh, 2014 hunting ban. Um, what was the rationale behind the ban as you understand it? And uh, what what were its effects? Okay, thank you, Peter. And uh, thanks, Chris, for the good background that you gave. It is true that um, the population of elephants in Botswana has been on the increase, at least for the last 20 years or so, from a mere 10,000 that you mentioned to almost 130,000 right now. But um, the 130,000 figure uh, somehow is is conservative in the sense that uh, we, we have the Department of Wildlife and National Parks, they also did their survey, and they came up with almost 230,000 elephants. And then we have this figure by Elephant Without Borders of 130,000 elephants. Again, we, we have been having a migration of elephants from neighboring countries of Zimbabwe, Zambia, Namibia, coming into Botswana ever since the hunting ban in, in 2014. So in reality, the numbers might be higher than we thought. Having said that, we... We had a hunting ban in, in 2014. As, as you rightly put it, the former president, uh, President Kama, is the one who came up with this uh, hunting ban. And then in 2019, uh, President Mukhoitz Masisi actually uh, reintroduced hunting. We could have had hunting last year, but because of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, hunting was not conducted. The main reason why there was a hunting ban in 2014, well, what you were told or what uh, Elephant Without Borders uh, came up with from their study was that uh, there was a lot of poaching going on. The Elephant Without Borders study does not mention that uh, elephants were on decline, but the majority of the species were on decline. So because of that, the government took that uh, decision to, to actually ban hunting for all the species, including elephants. So the hunting ban was uh, informed by this study which was carried out by Elephant Without Borders, uh, that is Dr. Mark uh, uh, organization. But again, when you look at uh, 
the political situation in Botswana by then. President Kama, his brother, Tsekido Kama, these are people who are involved in the tourism industry in Botswana. They are actually part and parcel of the photographic tourism in the country. President Kama is a shareholder in Great Plains, which is one of the, the major photo tourism companies in the country. There has been a bit of uh, some differences between the photo tourism industry in Botswana and the safari hunting industry in the country. So one would say in 2014, the photo industry won in the sense that they ended up saying hunting should be banned. So you look at the political elites in the country in 2014, you look at their business interest, and you look at who are their, their, their partners in the tourism industry, then you would say partly the hunting ban was informed by the, the photo tourism industry not interested in hunting. Why are they not interested in hunting? Simply because the market, the photo tourist uh, market is mostly in North America, mostly in the US, Canada, um, the UK, Germany. There are some photo tourists who are completely against hunting. And uh, because of that, you'll find that together with the animal rights group, uh, animal activists in North America, in the global north, they actually informed or they 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 influenced the hunting ban. So it's a it's a it's a mixture of uh, reasons. But I would say the mere participation of the political elites by then President Kama, his brothers, and, uh, into the tourism industry, the photo tourism industry won the day. Hence, we ended up with a with a, with a hunting ban. So the elephants. Really, they were not on decline by then. Elephants, uh, elephant numbers have been on the increase for the past 30 years or so. So there was no reason why this hunting ban was just inclusive of all the animals. Yes, there are other animal species like the rhinos, a number of them which are on decline. I would agree that uh, with, in relation to those species, hunting should not be there. But for elephants, I would I strongly argue that uh, we we need to go ahead and hunt those species. I hope, Peter, I've partly answered your question on why the hunting ban of 2014 in the country. Yes, thank you very much. And it's uh, as a political scientist, that's a, a fascinating answer because what I'm hearing from you is it it had maybe something to do with elephant numbers, at least as they were perceived, but it was also about the politics of uh, tourism and different types of tourism vying for those international dollars. Um, I, I wonder if I can ask you, because you didn't tell us much about the effects of the ban, um, and specifically, um, you know, I'm curious about effects both on elephant populations, but also on people. Um, you know, one of the most controversial things about the ban was the, the shoot-to-kill policy regarding poaching, which is a a rather a draconian, if if you will, or a, you know, it's a it's a it's a very harsh way of dealing with uh, people outside the law. What were the effects of these policies uh, from your perspective? Okay, let me start with the shoot to kill policy. Uh, I wouldn't say this was a policy per se, because when you talk of a policy, a policy should go through parliament, discussed in parliament, and then all the parliamentarians agree on it. 
I would rather say maybe this was a directive coming from the office of the president where the Rosada Defense Force, the anti poaching unit were given those orders to 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 shoot and kill when there is a poacher. Because right now, uh, you you can hunt all over in government offices. You will never get that directive or you will never get a, a document to say we have this shoot to to kill policy. However, up to today, the policy is still being used and um, uh, we have had so many incidents where uh, people were killed, especially those coming from, most of the pushers are coming from neighboring countries of Namibia, uh, Zambia. So that's where you have all these gangs, uh, organized uh, international illegal trade, elephants uh, and rhinos. So we have had a number of people being killed recently, I think a month ago or so. There was almost a, a diplomatic row between Botswana and Namibia because we had about four Namibians who were killed uh, on the Chobe River. So it's, 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 a, it's a policy which really is not supported. Uh, but at least in Botswana, Botswana are quiet about it. But the international community, they are really attacking that policy to say it's not okay. You cannot shoot and kill. Instead, you must arrest and uh, take a person to court. On the other hand, the Buzona government has come to say, or the Buzona Defense Force, they've come to say, these guys are armed. They're armed with uh, the arms of war. And you cannot arrest somebody who is shooting you with an arms of war. So there's a bit of controversy there. It is true that some of these guys have been arrested with uh, very dangerous arms of war. And um, it's, it's, it's a controversy there. But coming to the hunting ban, its effects, it really had uh, a serious uh, effect uh, on the livelihoods of the, the people of Botswana, especially those who, are involved, those who are involved in the tourism industry, safari hunting industry. In Northern Botswana, we have these community-based organizations. Actually, in Northern Botswana, the majority of the organizations are in Northern Botswana. We have some in, in Eastern Botswana. So you realize that uh, these are communities or these are villages uh, they've they've been involved in hunting since maybe 1991 when they formed the, the the their organizations. But when this hunting ban came, what it means is that uh, there was no longer revenue coming from safari hunting uh, into these communities. Almost over 80 percent of the revenue which communities uh, derived from the tourism industry was coming from hunting. So when that stopped in 2014. Uh, some of the communities simply collapsed. So this was one of the effects of the, the hunting ban. When people don't get benefits from wildlife, and wildlife happens to be in their local environment, they start developing negative attitude towards the wildlife. So this actually started happening from 2014. And the increase in poaching is partly blamed on the hunting ban because people are saying, because these former community rangers or community hunters were no longer hunting, now they were able to aid the, the gangs which come from across the border to hunt in the country. They started uh, giving them refuge in their areas, hence poaching went up. That is one of the stories which are there which need to be researched. The other thing, other effect is that when we stopped hunting in 2014, it is like uh, Botswana now became a safe 
safe uh, place for the elephants. We started having all these elephants coming from Namibia, from Zimbabwe, from Zambia. And when they started migrating into Botswana, yes, there might be other factors uh, why maybe they started migrating in the, into the country. But uh, we started having a lot of these animals in, in, in northern Botswana. And they started actually moving to other areas of the country where uh, I think for the past hundred years we have had no elephants there. Molebule area, there was even an elephant in Gaburuni. Today they killed an elephant in Palape. This is almost in eastern Botswana, Mahalape area. Right now, as we speak, the Central Kalahari Game Reserve has got about 1,500 uh, elephants, which were not there for the past hundred years. So we started having these animals moving into all these areas. And in the process, what happened was that uh, they started destroying crops and uh, the, 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 you know, the conflicts with farmers started escalating, going up. They were not only destroying crops, they were also destroying property in terms of uh, the livestock watering um, yeah, property was destroyed by these elephants, started killing people. We had a lot of deaths uh between 2014 and, uh, and 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 last year so people you know these elephants were moving into these areas you know killing people destroying property destroying crops so human wildlife conflict in other ways uh started to increase in the area so there were a lot of effects due to the to the hunting ban you've painted quite a a picture of how unique in many ways the situation in Botswana is I think that's a central part of this story is that Botswana was dealing with unique dynamics when it came to the elephant population um, and took a variety of policy measures to uh, to deal with that. And I think you've, you've explained well the difference, for example, between the interests of photographic tourism and, say, the interests of local populations that were involved in um, wildlife hunting as part of community-based resource management. So I do want to come back to that question uh, of community-based resource management as an alternative approach in a second, but I want to turn to Chris first because, you know, this question of the unique circumstances of Botswana and the political processes for managing wildlife populations in that context has been something that you've been thinking about in your work. And you have argued that the cancellation of the hunting ban relates to the reinstatement of democratic norms in Botswana. What do you mean by that? Um, to be clear, uh, Botswana is a democratic country. Uh, you know, if you look at these kinds of uh, rankings, for instance, that Freedom House or other organizations put out evaluating the state of democracy, human rights, etc., in various countries around the world, Botswana is always quite near the top uh, in the African rankings. Um, but uh, Joe's alluded to uh, the rule of former President Kama, and many observers, myself included, uh, argue that during his time in office, which was from 2008 to 2018, you did see some disturbing trends of um, increased authoritarianism. Um, as Joe alluded to, you saw a tendency for him to rule through executive decree uh, rather than uh, go through parliament. Um, he was quite contemptuous of the press. Um, in 2017, he went as far as um, charging a couple of journalists with sedition, though um, those charges were later withdrawn. He had a very um, 
oppositional relationship with uh, the unions uh, in, in Botswana. And perhaps most seriously, um, there were allegations, and they never were proven, but there are certainly allegations in Botswana that there were a series of dirty tricks um, and even um, a handful of deaths that were unexplained um, uh, of opponents of his. And that um, there was, as a result of all of this, what people have described as a climate of fear that began to um, increase in Botswana. I don't want to overstate it. Kama uh, did win two democratic elections, but compared to how it had been, um, there was a sense uh, of a, a more authoritarian hand and increasingly uh, climate of fear. And that was reflected, for instance, in an Afrobarometer survey in 2018, which saw uh, an increase in the po- percentage of the population who were concerned about the state of democracy in Botswana, were concerned about um, these alleged dirty tricks, etc. Um, as you mentioned, uh, Kama left office in 2018 as successor, President Masisi, uh, who won the 2019 elections. Um, he presented himself as trying to uh, reestablish democratic uh, norms in Botswana, if you will. Um, and he kind of did you know, all the things that Kama hadn't been doing. He worked through parliament. He opened up to the press again. He opened up to the unions again. Um, he launched uh, corruption probes, uh, etc., um, and his victory, I certainly interpret his victory in the 2019 election. And by the way, in that election, uh, President, former President Kama left the ruling party that he and Masisi had both been part of and created his own uh, new uh, splinter party to campaign against uh, President Masisi's party, the Botswana Democratic Party. Uh, and he was soundly defeated uh, at the polls. So I certainly interpret the 2019 election as an endorsement of President Masisi and an endorsement of his uh, drive to um, reestablish or reaffirm democratic norms uh, in Botswana. This ties into the elephant controversy because the 2014 hunting ban was one of the signature policies of President Kama. He had a very high profile internationally as a conservationist. Uh, he did a number of different things, but the hunting ban was certainly Uh, his signature policy in this respect. Um, And we can contrast how he brought in the ban versus how Masisi got rid of it. When he brought it in, as Joe said, uh, he did it uh, through executive decree. Uh, It was not based on good science. Uh, Joe alluded to this, but the 2010 um, wildlife report that he based it on showed elephant numbers, in fact, were stable. And that wildlife populations, different species were up or down in different parts of the country, but that overall they were generally strong. And that if there were issues, it was primarily a result of at that time ongoing drought, not any particular poaching pressures. So there was nothing in the science that really justified the ban. So that's how Kama brought in the ban in 2014. In 2019, when uh, Masisi got rid of the ban or reinstated hunting, he was very scrupulous about doing it the exact opposite way. And as I say, I think this is just part of his broader effort to reestablish democratic norms in Botswana. But as you've already alluded to, um, he uh, instituted a debate in parliament. There was a debate about this, uh, uh, the, the issue of hunting. Coming out of that debate, there was a parliamentary committee that was established, did a six-month consultation campaign around the country, uh, met with all 
uh, actors and stakeholders got their points of view, reported back to Parliament that there is overwhelming popular support in Botswana for reinstitution, reinstituting hunting for the reasons that um, Joe has described. Um, and then he reinstituted hunting. And the reinstituting of it was, again, based on a, what I would describe as a um, firmer scientific foundation, the fact that elephant populations were stable and that most of the populations of other wildlife species uh, also remain stable. So certainly this issue of elephants and hunting is important in itself, but I do contextualize it within a broader debate in Botswana about the nature of democracy and reestablishing reestablishment of democratic norms um, by the current president, Masisi, following uh, the term of his predecessor, President Kama. Joe, we're, uh, Chris and, and I, we're talking about your country and about the politics, the internal politics. I wonder if you uh, have anything you want to add or, on uh, what Chris has just been talking about, about this question of how democracy and the uh, policies and approaches to hunting relate to one another in Botswana. Uh I think I like what uh, I like. Chris, his analysis is very good and to 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 the point. So what really I can add is that uh, it is true during President Kama's time there were just a lot of uh, directives, and uh, there was that element of fear. Uh, even researchers in academia, some of them were just afraid of <laughs> writing what their results, their research is telling them, because. Uh, we also had people who, who were like uh, uh, kicked out of the country if they were not citizens of the country because of that. Yes, there were those killings. We don't know who killed them because it has never been confirmed. So there was that element of fear. But with the introduction of uh, the new government and uh, President Masisi, we, we have things going through parliament. And uh, the first thing that happened was that uh, the hunting ban was discussed in Parliament, and uh, a motion was passed in Parliament that uh, we should we should reintroduce hunting. And then after that, there was this uh, consultation where uh, uh, the members of Parliament, cabinet ministers, went out there. There was a committee, subcommittee of cabinet. They went out there to to discuss with the, the affected communities uh, whether we should reintroduce uh, hunting or not. And the majority of the people, they supported uh, the idea of uh, of hunting, that hunting should be reintroduced. So we have a situation whereby, at the moment, um, hunting was legally and uh, formally uh, introduced in the country through parliament. So that's what I would add. Democracy has, has increased in the country. And uh, we are actually happy that uh, that's how things should should maybe go. But again, I think we should also not downplay the role played by the animal rights group, especially in in North America, and uh, how the, the organizations out there in North America are funding some of the the anti-hunting sentiments in the country. So that on its own, really, it, 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 it played a very significant role in ensuring that we don't have hunting in the country. Hunting, should, hunting was banned in, in 2014. Up to today, we still have the animal rights group really complaining and uh, 
um, you know, telling us that we should stop hunting, which to me really is not based on science like what Chris has said. It's just emotions and, uh, and the like. Thank you very much, Joe. And I, I do, in our final questions, want to come back to this question of the North-South relations. Um, but before we do that, I want to ask you one more question, Joe, about um, you introduced this idea of community-based resource management. And as you know, my initial look at it is, is you're talking about a way that is about conserving animals while allowing some uh, harvesting of them that works uh, and that provides local populations um, with an, an incentive and, a, and an F, a revenue stream for being part of that. Can you can you explain a little bit more about how that approach works, how you've seen it work, and and where and how it contrasts with this more this approach of a ban? Uh, when you look at uh, the the community based uh, natural resource management uh, approach, it is actually focusing on two two fronts. That is the uh, improved rural livelihoods in rural areas, especially where we have these communities in wildlife areas. Secondly, the approach is promoting uh, uh, the conservation of natural resources, especially wildlife. The whole argument behind this approach is that uh, communities will never support conservation if they are not benefiting from the resources. For them to 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 to, to support conservation, they must benefit. Uh, from the resources. They must benefit from the wildlife in their environment. The the benefits from wildlife should actually exceed the costs. But if the benefits are low, they will never, never support um, uh, support uh, uh, conservation. This actually almost happened in 2014 during the hunting ban because some people no longer, when hunting stopped, uh, when 80% of their revenue was no longer there, when some of the community projects, community activities were no longer being carried out because of the hunting um, the hunting ban, some of those guys simply went out there to start poaching. Poaching escalated. So the whole idea of community-based natural resource management is, is, is that uh, communities should benefit from 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 the wildlife resources in their environment for them to conserve those resources, and um, this has been found to be true in um, in, in especially in southern Africa. Uh, there are scholars like Amanda. Amanda was my my supervisor at Texas A and M. She did much of her work in South America. So, if communities benefit, they benefit from natural resources. They will they will they will, they, they, they will support. Uh, conservation. I think Sanjay Nepal also did some studies in, in 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 Nepal, in Asia, out there. So this community approach really has been found to be working, and uh, that's what I've been advocating for here in the country to say: if we are to conserve not only elephants, the rhinos as well, other species as well, we need to ensure that communities in wildlife areas, they benefit from these resources, either through photographic tourism or even through hunting, because hunting in Botswana is selective. You you cannot just go out there as an individual and you start hunting. Uh, the wildlife quotas are given, are, uh, allocated to communities, and that is done by the Department of Wildlife and National Parks after some aerial service or some form of survey has been done. So 
the community-based natural resource management approach to me is, is one of the, the approaches that we can actually use to promote conservation of the natural resources as well as to promote improved rural livelihoods in our, in our countries. Thank you very much. Um, we only have a few minutes left. I would like to turn to this question of the North-South relations. Um, Chris, your analysis of the international reaction to the removal of the hunting ban in Botswana is that it reveals an ongoing racism towards Africa and what you call an eco-colonial approach. Can you clarify what you mean by that term eco-colonialism and racism playing out in this story? You know, my interest in this, I'm not an ecologist, I'm a political scientist. Um, and I came to this issue when I was in Botswana on sabbatical in 2019, because I was struck by how different uh, the response to this whole controversy was uh, in North America and amongst the people I knew in North America as compared to how it was being treated um, in Botswana. Um, people in North America fed very much by what I would regard as quite sensationalistic uh, press coverage and also, as Joe has alluded to, certainly driven by a lot of the animal rights movements around the world, tended to um, argue that, um, you know, we had to have this hunting ban because it was the only way to preserve elephants from going uh, extinct. And there tended to be this kind of conflation of hunting and poaching, as if stopping hunting would prevent poaching. Whereas in fact, as Joe has just explained, a lot of his research and the research of others is that stopping hunting actually may have led to an increase, uh, ironically, in poaching. So, you know, that was kind of the assumption in the North uh, that, you know, we had to have a hunting ban. We had to have uh, this very militarized approach um, to conservation. Inside Botswana, as you've heard, there was a much uh, widespread popular support for hunting. There was support for this idea of community-based natural resource management um, and the idea that the way you preserve animals is through properly regulated and controlled um, conservation measures, including both photographic uh, tourism and uh, properly controlled hunting. And it's this contrast between how they understood in North America and how they understood in Botswana that led me to this idea of eco-colonialism. We could define it as the imposition of European conservation paradigms and power structures on indigenous peoples. And I argue that the way you see this operating in this current controversy um, might involve perhaps five different elements. One element I think I describe as nostalgia. Um, I think in the West, there's still a very widespread notion of Africa as untamed, pristine wilderness. A wilderness, by the way, in which no people, no black people are present. And that's an image that we all want to hold. Um, something that I regard as very significant. Um, what is the single greatest source of information that people in the West have about Botswana? Well, it's not anything that any political scientist or anybody else put out. It's a movie put out by National Geographic called The Last Lion, which is been viewed by perhaps half a billion, that's with a B people, um, which describes in very anthropomorphic ways uh, the uh, life story of a given lion. There are no people in that movie. And this is the greatest single source of information that people outside Botswana have about that country. So there's this 
continual image of Africa as a place without cities, without people, uh, without black people. The second thing I would talk about is paternalism. Uh, the idea that the West and Western experts are the ones whose expertise must be looked to and that people in Africa do not have expertise to be paid attention to. In this whole controversy, experts in the animal rights movement in the North um, and certain white experts, uh, some of them in Kenya and South Africa, they were the ones who were reported on international media. People inside Botswana, people like Joe and others who had a different line, tended not to be heard from. And that I found very concerning. The third element that I think is involved here uh, is what I call uh, the imposition of universal values uh, as a way of enforcing Western values and shutting out African ones. The claim that there is a common uh, shared heritage in wildlife, which gives people outside Botswana the right to intervene and to try to influence uh, Botswana's decisions about how to deal with these issues. Something I found very um, striking was that as part of this whole controversy, one of the leading animal rights movements in the world, uh, Humane Society International, based in the United States, did a survey, commissioned a survey, paid tens of thousands of dollars for this survey. They surveyed over a thousand people uh, for their opinions about uh, whether or not hunting should be allowed to resume. Uh, and the answer was overwhelmingly, uh, no, hunting should not be allowed to resume. But who did they survey? They surveyed only American citizens. And so think of what's being said here, that the voice of American citizens should be heard. They didn't survey a single person in Botswana. So they were assuming that it wasn't important or necessary to hear about what people in Botswana might have to say about this. The fourth thing, I think Joe's alluded to this, I certainly see very unequal power relationships here. Something that was just beneath the surface in this whole controversy was a threat. And that threat was that if Botswana did not ban hunting or it did not do what the animal rights movements internationally wanted it to do, then those groups would institute a boycott of Botswana's very profitable tourism industry. Tourism is the second largest sector of the economy. Uh, and so certainly a widespread boycott of the tourism industry would be very, um, very harmful. And all the international groups, there was always that veiled um, or not so veiled threat behind everything they said. If you don't, then we will. If you don't uh, ban hunting, then we will boycott your uh, industry. And then, of course, finally, uh, I think there's a great deal of hypocrisy here. Um, Africans were being asked to ban hunting and were being pressured to ban hunting. And I point out that, of course, here in Canada, hunting is a perfectly legal activity. It's regulated and controlled in precisely the same way that it's regulated and controlled in uh, Botswana. So it does come across as hypocritical for people in Canada and other Western countries where hunting is legal for them to be uh, advocating so strongly for a hunting ban in a country like Botswana. All of it, to me, points to, uh, yes, a um, fundamentally racist uh, attitude here in which um, people in the global north presume to be able to speak for, speak to um, Africans about how Africans should deal with conservation challenges. And I find it very problematic. 
Joe, I'd like to turn to you here, and uh, I'd, I'd welcome your reflections on anything Chris has just been talking about. I also understand that you've um, also been thinking about how racism and the tourism sector in Botswana play out. Yes. Um, actually, Chris did a very good analysis of uh, what is happening in the global north, global south, the racism in the in the tourism industry in Botswana. That was a good analysis. You look at racism in, in the tourism industry, both safari and photographic tourism. It has got a long history in Botswana. Um, it dates back long, long pre, during the British colonial rule of Botswana, uh, who were the hunters coming into the country. He talked about uh, these people who were coming to this bush where there are animals, there are no human beings. So there was a lot of hunting by then. And then it went on up to the 70s, and then that's when we started having the, the, the photographic tourism. And the photographic tourism, again, who was in there, most of the managers in the, in the tourism lodges and camps were coming from South Africa, and it was like uh, they're coming to this country to, to a people who know nothing about tourism. And by then, yes, there were few educated people in the country with degrees. And like I know at Independence in 1966, I think there were less than 50 people with uh, bachelor's degrees in the country. So I think that was perpetuated up to, to today. And then we started even seeing the animal rights group in the global north. You, you talk of all the protocols, you talk of sightings, you talk of what... Most of these protocols, most of these uh, policies on, on, on hunting, on tourism, they're coming from the global north and uh, the global south. They should adopt, they should uh, agree and uh, not, not oppose, including in the world of experts who is there. Most of the, the researchers who have been doing research in the country, uh, a, few, a few of them are from Botswana. Majority have been coming from uh, the global north, uh, some from South Africa, and when I say South Africa, white South Africa. So you, you have all this racism. And uh, if I write something as a citizen of Botswana and uh, somebody writes it uh, coming from the U.S. and they are white, uh, they are likely to take his recommendations as compared to mine. So this has been at play in the country for a, a, a very long time. And this has actually influenced the tourism industry, influenced the safari hunting industry in the country. Again, when you look at what is happening right now when it comes to hunting, to me, photographic tourism and safari hunting, they, they, they are not antagonistic to each other. They complement each other. In Botswana, photographic tourism is actually being undertaken in core areas, in prime areas, whereas uh, safari hunting is in peripheral areas where people live because the core areas, most of them are protected areas, national parks, game reserves. We don't hunt in national parks and game reserves, but we hunt outside the national parks and game reserves. And when you hunt outside, that's where the people live. I looked at what the Human International of uh, the US, the survey that they conducted. To me, you look at it, you laugh at it. You look at the methods they used, really. That was not a survey. But people tend to believe that. I'm saying that was not a survey in quotation marks. It's not, to me, it was not scientific enough. But they were doing that. They didn't even interview anybody in Botswana. You interview people in Botswana at the moment, they will tell you that uh, we want hunting. 
uh, animals are killing us. We don't want animals in our villages. So you end up with a situation whereby the people of Botswana, they, 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 there's that perception to say animal rights groups perceive animals better than people. To them, an animal is more important than human life, which is not supposed to be the case. The truth about it is that the people of Botswana want conservation. We promote conservation. But we are looking at a situation whereby we, there is this concept of uh, a socio-ecological framework where we are seeing human well-being and ecology. We need to look at them. There has to be a balance. We shouldn't actually focus on ecology alone and leave the human well-being outside. There should be a balance between the two. We should look at them and then we will achieve conservation. Thank you, Joe and uh, Chris. And I, I would love to keep asking questions, but uh, our time is uh, coming to an end. And so um, just by, by way of wrapping up, I found this a fascinating conversation today. We began talking about elephant populations and whether they're on the decline or on the rise. And it very quickly went to a conversation on the, the politics of the domestic uh, tourism sector. And and from there, how that engages with uh, with the global north, and uh, with questions of ongoing uh, colonial attitudes from the north and racism from the north. Um, and I I, I want to thank both of you for being here because I feel like uh, by talking to a, an African scholar from Botswana, who has clearly studied these issues and, and has a very grounded uh, perspective from which to talk about it. Um, and then someone like yourself, Chris, who is uh, from my university looking from here, but with a very different perspective than, than a lot of the northern animal rights and welfare groups that we've just been talking about. Um, the two of you have brought, uh, brought a lot of clarity for me and I think for the students who are listening to this podcast. Thank you both for joining us on the Ecopolitics podcast today. For anyone listening to this program, we welcome your feedback via email. Uh, you can download uh, the podcasts on any of the apps where you get your podcasts, such as iTunes and so on. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you in our next episode. 